0: Metal episode 65 I'm joined for the first time in a while by Rob to cover what I I don't know if it's still true for you but would you say this is your favorite band
1: I think it's it's a really really hard question to answer Agalock have definitely been up there for many many years as one of my definitely recurring in the top five I wouldn't necessarily say I have a favorite band at the moment but if there was to be one Agalock would be one of them
0: yeah, so we're going to be doing a deep dive on Agalock and kind of related side projects for the main three members. Um, we're not going to go into every single one of them because Jason Walton has a million bands, <laughs> And we're ignoring Aesop Decker's stuff just so we're not here all night because he's very much the fourth member. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so the, the slightly interesting take I think we'll be having on this is is that I'm not exactly deep into my Agaloc stuff like I've always enjoyed a few albums of theirs but for me this was a bit of a a voyage of discovery whereas I think you knew basically all the uh, all the Agalok discography inside out
1: but if, yeah I, I think it's really interesting though going back and doing it in chronological order which is what I did like I started right off at the beginning with those early demos and went through including all of the EPs and stuff and it's really interesting seeing the evolution that they take and how they bring in the different aspects that they have because Agalock are one of those bands which are notoriously hard to categorise into any one genre there's elements of black metal there's elements of folk metal there's these neoclassical acoustic guitars there's these really ambient segments and it's really interesting looking at that chronologically and seeing where they've taken a whole bunch of like these sort of folky guitars for the mantle and then dropped back on that a little bit but then um, when they got to "Ashed Against the Grain but then brought it back in things like the YTP so it's it's something that I don't do very often is go back to bands and go through them in a chronological order, but it's it's really interesting to do.
0: Yeah, so should we dive into this basically from the start? Um, so Agalok formed in 1995 in I think, I think they've always been relate uh, always been based in Portland, Oregon, in the states, and they were initially formed as a, a one man project of John. Is it Horm how you pronounce his I last name? I think it's Horm, but I'm not 100%. We'll go with that for this. But yeah, so it was founded by one man, multi-instrumentalist, uh, John Horn, And their first recording is the demo from "Which of This Oak. So yeah, where do you stand on this one, Rob?
1: So so the two demos are kind of weird because they're, um, I think almost all, not quite all, but almost all of the songs on them are songs which would go on to be on pale folklore. And I have a bit of a weird relationship with the demos because I find myself not really being able to listen to them that much because... They're just not quite as polished versions of what the songs end up being on Pale Folklore. Um, but I think you can tell from the beginning that Agalock have a lot of weird takes on black metal. From Right from the get-go, even with the poorer recording quality than you'd get on later albums, you have this like, faint element of black metal and this element of melancholy that you get in almost all Agalog. It's never really that aggressive, apart from a couple of exceptions, but it uses that black metal atmosphere to create this sort of, like, quite cold, wintry, melancholy feel within you. And I think you can see that from the beginning, that there would always be something really interesting about this combination of genres, but it hadn't quite crystallized with the lineup and the sound quality that it needed at this point.
0: Yeah, yeah. So at this point in time, uh, John had already picked up um, Don Anderson, who would be you know long time collaborator, and was essentially there from the get go because he recorded guitar on this EP. I don't know how much it's just him doing solos, and he's also even providing backing vocals and the band also interestingly had two additional members who never Mm. who didn't continue on that long with them of um a keyboard player who lasted with them to the stone wind and pillar ep and um karen cox who's just credited as female vocals on this uh this demo and then nothing else Uh, i think both the guys had had some experience with with past bands that hadn't ever got much out the out of the demo phase uh Don was in Necropolis, who, if you look up Necropolis on Metal Archives, you'll find how difficult it is to find anything for that band. There is, like, at least 30 bands named that, 15 of which in the US. So I don't (laughs) even... That was one. I wanted to hear that album, but yeah, I just could not find a copy of it.
1: And and I can imagine there's about 100 albums called Necropolis as well, in addition to that.
0: hmm yeah, so so no idea what his death metal project was like, which is a shame. But yeah, I think at this point in time, he's already started his kind of avant-garde project sculptured.
1: Yeah, yeah, so sculptured a really interesting one. So Don Anderson, I... I would personally say, is sort of the MVP for Agalok. Like, his guitar work is phenomenal. The melodic phrases he comes up with, while being so catchy, and yet feeling incredibly black metal in a non-aggressive way. And you can see this work throughout everything he does through Sculptured, through Agalok, and through bands like Corrada. He just has a way of coming up with these incredibly emotive melodic guitar lines, which I think is one of the strongest points of Agalok.
0: Yeah, yeah. This... This is something that actually really surprised me about this first demo was kind of how fully formed the idea especially the idea of what will happen on the the first album was it seems like they sort of came out the gate with this idea of doing this sort of post rock meets folk meets kind of black metal stuff in one go. Yeah. I I get what you were saying though about it um having a strange quality. I've heard Don Anson interviewed and saying one of the reasons this album sounds odd is when John was recording the drums, he made the mistake... Because he's not a musically trained guy, whereas Don is incredibly musically trained. He made the mistake of trying to res- record his drum parts to a like computerised demo of what the drum parts should be. Ooh. Which means the whole album has this weird stuttering nature. It would,
1: yeah, that would feel super mechanical and I think particularly for music like this which feels so natural, like evokes these images of majestic you know, forested
0: landscapes, that would feel, that sort of explains why it feels a little off. Yeah, yeah. And so, the other thing with this this uh, demo is I think the first two tracks are really great and then the second two kind of piece out a bit and notably they're the ones that don't go any further with the band. Yeah, yeah, um... And it's yeah, it's 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 that uncanny thing of songs
1: that I know super super well just a little bit different uh, and I think obviously because they didn't they weren't a full band at this point they didn't have Jason in on bass and they didn't have you know access to the same recording techniques that they'd use later just like a little bit worse than I know them so it's a really weird experience hearing them.
0: Yeah, yeah well i guess from that with this like pretty neatly leads us into the debut album and this is kind of a legendary album at this point now i mean we haven't really set up at the top i think agaloc are one of those completely legendary bands in the field of black and post metal and yeah pale folklore is one you definitely hear a lot about how yeah how do you get on with this one rob yeah so
1: i'm i'm a huge fan of pale folklore um it so it's 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 an album which really solidifies that agaloc brand of making music that sounds like the natural world channeled through a metal band somehow and it does this by taking all of these different elements of sections which feel like post-rock songs bits which feel are just like ambient noise like the album opens with just this howling wind and then this reverb soaked guitar which sort of melds with it in this really pleasing way and even when you have the more metallic and aggressive sections it it channels that sort of rough nastiness of nature and brings that all together into this package um there's yeah there's some really great stuff in here it's got it's got those slightly weird things like um John's sort of whispering black metal vocals which never really feel like true screams there's always a little bit of voice a little bit of rasp in these otherwise you know fairly traditional higher-end black metal vocals which are really understandable for this kind of vocal style um with these sort of ghost-like operatic female vocals as well um I'd say the album suffers a little from being recorded a long time ago. Um, You know, the drums aren't quite as nice as you'll find them on later Agaloc albums and certainly the bass sound when you get towards the end of Agaloc's career is fantastic and it doesn't quite have that here. But all the ingredients are there and this album just has this... Yeah, it, it just sounds like nature channel through metal and I love that about it
0: yeah we should say you bring up the bass sound actually at this point um jason william walton the kind of the third part of the you know the triumvirate that lead agalock has joined the band on bass and actually the interesting change as well is we both have jason and don contributing songwriting i think track f- like yeah they they both have writing credits on a few of the later tracks on the album And yeah, you can see this is now it's now a collaborative effort. It's moved from being John Holmes like solo project to actually a conjoined band. And it's so, it's got some of the other things that I think is a bit of
1: a trademark of Agalock, and it's the mixing of these acoustic, folky guitars with the electric, heavier, sort of post rocky, black metal y parts. So, on um, She Paints Fire Across the Skyline, which is this massive opening song split into three parts, in the second part, we have this really nice sort of interplay between starting off on acoustic guitars, switching into an electric riff. And a lot of the, a lot of things that I think Agalot plays with quite a lot is riffs that feel quite warm and then I think particularly later in their career they get riffs that can feel quite cold and alien and much more black metal on things like Marrow of the Spirit. But on this album you've got a lot of riffs that feel quite warm and yet still melancholy. Mixing that with these like harsher black metal vocals over the top creates a really sort of, a really interesting sound that is much more than the sum of its parts. We've heard all of these different things before, from quite open, positive sounding riffs to black metal vocals, but mixing them in this way with these ambient parts as well and with these acoustic guitars creates this really unique and wide ranging sound, which very few bands, even those that are looking to sort of do that Agalok thing, have ever really managed to capture.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's and and this as well. This must have seemed very inventive at the time. I think um, the kind of because they said like a lot of their early influence was like doing like Fields of the Nephilim and Catatonia mixed with some of that Norwegian black metal scene. Mm. And I don't think a lot of the Norwegian black metal scene had taken on that kind of Brave Murder Day Catatonia influence, which is I think where you get the real kind of natural sounding melancholy, that kind of, because that's quite a raw album in itself as well. And I, I can feel quite a lot of that in here.
1: Yeah. And and groups like um, Godspeed You Black Emperor as well, which Don Anderson um, has talked about being an influence on early Agaloc. Um, and another thing that I really like in Agalok that they'll do more and more as they go on that you can just hear on this album is the use of unconventional instruments. So in, in part three of She Paints Fire Across the Skyline, there's the use of bells alongside these acoustic guitars, which adds this huge sort of atmosphere and ambience to it. Um, and we'll see this a lot more with a lot weirder sort of instruments as it goes on. But it, it, it just embellishes that really natural flavor that their albums have.
0: I think as well, this album was quite an interesting sort of mission statement of opening it with essentially one 18 minute long song. Yeah. I do know. They like, I think, depending on what version of the album you get, sometimes it's split out into three tracks. Uh, the version I've got is just one solid 18 minute track. Yeah.
1: And then with um, the sort of uh, instrumental of The Misshapen Steed in between, going into what really seemed much more traditional, um, Hallways of Enchanted Ebony, Dead Winter Days, and As Embers Dress the Sky, which are long, you know, they're between seven and ten minutes, but they're more traditional in an Agaloc sense than the massive 18-minute opener. It's quite rare that they'll do songs like that. Um, You know, it's, it's normally like one per album. Um, and then ending on another epic of the melancholy spirit, which is probably my favourite from this album. Um, But another thing that I think pops up in these later songs, particularly songs like Dead Winter Days and Enchanted Ebony, is they've got these really groovy sections, sort of out of nowhere. There's these riffs which come along with the drums to create a really solid groove, which is really, really interesting, and something that you wouldn't expect to find in very post-metal-influenced stuff. You'd often have these really quite open sections, but they'll have these really driving, groovy riffs in it, which, I, I don't know, it's it's an extra hook that really keeps you engaged.
0: Yeah, yeah. I will say, going through the... So they have had five albums in total, Agarok. I definitely think for me this is my least favorite of them. I, this is the one I wasn't so familiar with ahead of doing the research for this, and it still remains one that I just think the flaws in like the recording are I find a bit off-putting after a while, especially because you know it's an hour-long listen. There's there's some great ideas in there, but I, I do think they just did a lot of this better as their career went on. Yeah, but I I, I know this I know this album has a special place in a lot of people's hearts. I know plenty you say this is their best work still i think aesop decker might be included in that
1: it's really hard um uh, because i've come to reappraise what i think is my favorite bit of Agalok throughout this and i really don't think i can make a decision um they're all they're all very different at the end of the day and it's really hard to compare something like this with um the serpent and the sphere which has probably the nicest production but feels so different as an album. it's really hard and because i think it's quite nice to have a band who finished off with just five albums you know that's compared to other bands we cover that's nothing um and it's really interesting just that's not a huge amount to wrap your head around in a way and to look at how they all relate to each other which i think makes it really hard because none of them at least in my mind are particularly bad they're all just a slightly different expression of what makes agaloc unique and interesting
0: yeah yeah and it's really interesting being able to look back at that that degree of sort of creativity through their career but split over yeah not not a massively huge output like just Mm. they five quite different musical statements rather than a really slow burn evolution yeah yeah yeah, the other thing I I have to mention because it's my pet peeve of Agaloc, and I, I think a lot of people again will quite enjoy this part is I'm not a huge fan of John's kind of properly whisper vocals and I think this album is the worst offender for for moments of that like th- there's a particular moment in the opener where he does like a kind of um almost spoken word bit about 12 minutes in it sounds like Eric Cartman. <laughs> uh, I just yeah. heard that. I just couldn't get past that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like this is this is
1: something that I sort of go on and off with. Like at times, I love it. Like there's bits like on um, a Desolation song on the mantle, which we'll get to, which which I actually really like. It's really atmospheric, but there are times where, like, if you're just in slightly the wrong mood, you'll hear it and go, oh, God, this is really pretentious, <laughs> like, you yeah. know, because I like a lot of Agaloc's lyrics. I think they're really nice, like, meditations on the difference between, like, the, the natural world and the artificial world and our mental health and how that relates to the spirituality of nature, which I think is really interesting. But sometimes when it's presented in a certain way, you just think, oh, come on, mate. <laughs> um <laughs> So yeah, it's it's definitely something that I think a lot of people get a lot out of, but can be a bit off-putting at times.
0: At this point in time, we can jump into some of the the sort of projects surrounding Agalok. So both Jason and Don Anderson were incredibly active in other bands at this same point in time. Um Jason put out two albums under a solo project called Nothing, which ironically enough I can't find anything from. I found like the odd the odd single and that, but nothing, nothing concrete enough to really review because they all felt like throwaway demos. I can't find any music off the main albums, which maybe I'm just bad at researching. But the band, uh, both me and Rob, really wanted to get to that sort of runs quite parallel to a lot of early Agalock And actually, their first album came out a bit ahead of th- a bit ahead of um, Pale Folklore, is um, Sculptured, which is. Uh, Project mainly led by uh, Don Anderson. I think, um, yeah, he's had a fair amount of other members over the years, but this is his kind of. They list some metal archives as progressive slash melodic death metal, but I think I just put them in that nebulous category of a progressive metal band.
1: Yeah, and and again, interesting parallels because John Horn, um, singer and guitarist of Agalock, did used to play drums before any of the recordings for Sculptured. Um, oh, really? And they- yeah yeah so so they switched him out for dave murray who i think is like particularly towards the end of sculptured's sort of discography becomes an incredible drummer um we won't talk about perhaps that album for a little while but um yeah sculptured had really interesting sort of like experimental melodic progressive metal and at some point it becomes you put so many adjectives on it that it doesn't really mean anything anymore so <laughs> yeah i <laughs> think Progressive metal is probably the best one and I think a really interesting point to think about with Sculptured is there's this great talk online from Don Anderson called Weaving Influences where he he talks about metal from a sort of literary point of view. He is a um, literary professor at a university in America so he sort of analyses heavy metal from how can we look at how the genres and influences within it have changed Um, And he makes this quite interesting statement about heavy metal being an accelerated genre because so much happens so quickly. Um, And I loved it because he basically just, for the first 20 minutes or so, talks about how great atheist is and how great unquestionable (laughs) presence is. And I'm like, yes, okay. I totally get where Sculptured is coming from because it's just doing this weird off-the-wall stuff with death metal. Um, And yeah, it's really interesting seeing where that influence has come from.
0: Yeah, yeah. So their first album came out in 1998 uh, called the-, the Spear of the Lily is Arealed. Um And this one, I didn't know so well ahead of this. And I actually really like this one now. I think um, it's got a lot to it.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting one. It's sort of like a weird progressive avant-garde take on melodic death metal. You know, there's so much melodic guitar in this. Um, And so many like really cool leads, and there's these really nice sort of like groovy riffs like you find in Agaloc sometimes, like, um, what's the name of the song? Uh, Later on in it, um, By the Light of the Morning has this really like groovy but quite positive sounding riff to it, Um, and yet a lot of the vocals and some of the like double bass underneath it almost sounds like you're listening to, you know, like a really old sort of arch enemy style band at sometimes.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's this this album, in particular, I think, is a really good one. If you hold this up next to Pale Folklore, you can totally tell where um, where in Agalock Don's like writing is, because like there's definitely bits of his lead guitar that translates into both bands. They, they've yeah. always had an, an interesting thing with this band of having a back and forth between Don's kind of like harsher, like kind of higher death metal vocal like your classic uh, sort of Gothenburg voice and then uh, he has uh, vocalist Brian Yeager on this one doing some clean vocals as the band went on they'd focus more on the cleans and less on the screams but this first album it, it's definitely the heaviest of the free sculpture albums I'd say
1: Yeah, and and the the clean vocals are really interesting because they almost sound like sort of R and B or crooning or something. They feel really weird on a metal album like this, and it gives it this. um, It has this quite romantic feeling to it, Um, like in Almond Beauty, which is um, has got you know lines like um, "as the snow melts in Almond Beauty" and all this sort of stuff. And um, it reminded me a little of when we were doing a bit of a um, with Simon looking at some of the Death and Doom. Um, metal and how some of that takes this quite romantic approach to the lyrics and to some of the melodic sections of the music and i thought that was that was a really like weird
0: but quite interesting part of this yeah that's particularly shown in you know there's loads of little samples throughout this i feel there was almost some intentional thing they were doing of using samples that are so out of place in usual extreme metal because they're they're like they sound like they're from old like 60s romantic movies most of them i didn't i couldn't place any of the like any of the samples but yeah there seemed to be an active thing they were doing of trying to have very different lyrical content to any of their contemporaries
1: yeah yeah and um it's got this sort of like um, some of the parts of it actually like because it often has these really positive riffs there's some of the textures particularly with the ambience and some of the piano sections that come in that almost remind me of bits of bands like lakithia aflame with this like really? really really like wholesome sections and then
0: sort of this death metal feel to it yeah yeah i, I can i can certainly see that in some ways but yeah, the, the other interesting thing with this album, because it's what I think actually put it on the map, is one really kind of minor detail of the recording that ended up being really interesting. So I remember hearing in an interview uh, Don saying he got to the end of the recording and thought he didn't want to write one more solo. And Burke Harris, the guy who was recording him, was like, oh yeah, you know I play trumpet. So they just stuck a trumpet <laughs> solo in a song rather than a guitar solo it was just like a last minute in studio whim and then this became like their signature sound it was just yeah it was just a kind of an off-the-cuff suggestion and it's so like this is without question the first time i'd heard trumpet in metal like in 1998 i can't believe there's much that predates that but yeah it's a really interesting idea
1: in in combination with sort of the like piano sections as well, it while it's weird, it sort of feels right in Sculptured, and then being something that's on both of the other albums as well, yeah, it just, yeah, it feels really natural, um, which seems wrong for metal at this stage.
0: Yeah, yeah, so we can probably jump straight into the second Sculptured album, because that kind of comes out ahead of a lot of. They like, actually, the first two sculpture albums come out like right next to each other. I think there is only like yeah, a ni- year between them
1: nineteen ninety eight and then two thousand when um, Apollo ends. The second sculptured album comes out.
0: Yeah, so the the big change between the first and second album is we now have like it's now layered in trumpet solos. That's now like their signature thing, and Brian Yeager takes a much more prominent part of. The vocals, like he he's now leading it and Don's almost more of a backing singer. Oh, uh, we also get Jason Walton joining the project.
1: Yeah, um, and, I, and I think this marks quite an interesting move in how Sculptured are working and we'll see this even more so on the album after this, but they just get weirder as it goes on you know, the sort of saccharine sweetness and positive energy of the first album is a little bit gone and you've got more like weird interweaving of sort of guitar melodies and riffs in slightly bizarre structures which feel like that the structures at least feel more like they would come out of a band like Atheist than a band like this and yet the sound's completely different to something like Atheist
0: yeah yeah it's certainly one of those bands that has that kind of it's technical in the way the songs are structured rather than in the individual moments like it's not that showy but it's immensely complex Yeah,
1: and um, a really interesting thing I read about this, and this uh, goes beyond my musical knowledge. So this album, um, I don't know if it's true for Embodiment, the third album as well, but this is um, composed using the 12-tone technique, which is a classical technique um, in which you don't have keys. Um, All 12 notes within it are equally emphasised, which means you're never actually in a key which I sort of I read up a bit on Wikipedia and followed a few of the sources and was a bit like I don't think I get this but it's that it's that thing we were talking about of Don Anderson has this like classical music education where he has a really great grasp of a lot of stuff that you don't see in metal that often outside of someone like Luke Lemay and Gorguts so it's really interesting the way this is constructed is completely different from
0: any other like death metal album yeah yeah and it's part of that really if you look at the time period as well for these two albums as i've said a lot like um around like 96 to about 2004 is a bit of a weird time for death metal where it wasn't really getting noticed but there's a lot of stuff like this which was just absolutely pushing the boundaries madness that kind of gets missed i think um the like sculptures are now purely known because this album like Easily their most popular features. I, I also got to mention John's on this album on drums, so you've got the Agalock lineup doing a progressive death metal project. But yeah, I, I don't know how much acclaim it got at the time being this incredibly like, avant garde. Yeah, because
1: it's it's so, so early. If you think about, you know, the use of brass instruments just as one thing in metal, most people would trace that back to Ishan and Jürgen Munkerby and Shining, um, which is definitely the point at which using the sax got really, really popular, and now you know, all bands are using saxes and Enslaved are doing it, Rivers of Nile got really popular with it, um, and saxophone solos are just becoming that thing in metal but yeah. trumpets and stuff, like even nowadays, that's uncommon, and to think about doing it before and around the year 2000 is just no metal purists they'd, they'd have all hated
0: this well, so do you know what's interesting I find this album really puts me in mind of is F.L. Duas The Painter's Palette because that also has yeah. very similar delivery of the clean vocals and a guest trumpet player throughout and whereas they yeah. set more more firmly in the black metal as like the primary influence there, I think there's a lot of like overlaps the other main difference is sculptured is definitely a more positive band whereas the third you have very very bleak but there's a lot of like tonal similarities
1: yeah yeah absolutely and um there's other weird experimentation on this album that i think we'll see later in agaloc as well with um songs like apollo destroys apollo creates there's this like section where there's this horrible crescendoing ambient noise which just like slowly overpowers you with and then this really nice like acoustic guitar segment which comes afterwards and it's quite a nice like thematic look at the tension between creation and destruction that this album sort of looks at i think it's done pretty well here there are bits in later Agalok where i think it it overstays its welcome. I think you have to be quite careful with how you do these very long ambient segments before you'll just sort, sort, sort of go, right, okay, when's the next riff? And, and that's maybe just me. There are times where I really like it and there are bits in Agaloc's discography, like there's bits on Mara of the Spirit where I think it goes really, really well. But there are other sections like um, on Ashes Against the Grain uh, where I feel it just drags on a little too long.
0: Yeah, yeah, I will get to that in a bit, but yeah, I'm kind of with you there. The one other thing I want to mention about Apollo's Ends is the really weird choice of ending. Um, the, the final track summary is 40 seconds where they just play tiny motifs from all six songs before it. I'm not yeah. sure it works personally, but... <laughs>
1: It feels like taking, you know, sort of an, a classical technique that you might do in a symphony or something and bringing it into metal. And yeah, I'm not sure it quite works, but it's kind of interesting. And it's only 40 seconds long. So you finish it and you're like, huh, that was a bit weird. But it's not like you've listened to some, you know, five minutes of static or something. Like that.
0: Yeah, so from that, um, this kind of brings us back into Agaloc. So I assume with all the members involved in Sculptured in 2000, Agaloc was, you know, moving a bit slower at that time. Um, So Agaloc at this point as well were very much dedicated to the idea of just being a studio project. Um, And yeah, so the four members from Pale Folklore, yes, Shane's still with them on keyboards, get together for their first ep of stone wind and pillar and this brings up something i really like agaloc for of they are a band who know how to do eps for the most part like they they're a band where their eps are well worth looking into so this one's not i wouldn't say particularly mind-blowing for me this just felt like a kind of continuation of pale folklore so,
1: so for me, this is... Well, I mean, in time, but also in theme, it's the bridge between Pale Folklore and the mantle. There's a lot more neoclassical elements, and the use of the acoustic guitar is much more emphasised and a lot more mixed with the electric here than it is in Pale Folklore. Pale Folklore, while still doing that doesn't do it to quite the extent that Of Stone, Wind & Pillar does. And also you've got a lot more clean vocals coming in on this album. John's sort of like very post-rocky clean vocals on songs like "Um, Kneel to the Cross, which is a Sol Invictus cover. They've got a lot of these chanting, they've got a lot of keys and these clean vocals which bridges really nicely into the mantle which is you know the most folky of any of agaloc's main albums so there's a really nice continuation between this ep to the next album which i think is quite nice because it it shows like you were saying how agaloc use their eps they try out these new ideas and when they find this idea that works they
0: just use that for the next album it's funny, actually, you bring up Nils the cross being a cover. I've written in my notes, I was like, this really sounds like a cover to me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, weirdly enough, Don Anderson would go on to do live guitars with
0: Sol Invictus for a little bit. <laughs> wow, oh, that's really cool. But yeah, I, I so I enjoyed this EP. It's, it's cool, it's a little kind of rough around the edges, but as you say, it's that sort of... The slight evolution of a lot of their ideas just, yeah, seem to really work here. And I think, especially if you're one of those people who loves like the mantle or pale folklore, this is kind of essential listening because it is just in that vein again.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and that's the thing because I think Agaloc have this really like quite gradual evolution, and you can see them playing around with different elements over their lifespan. So if you like little bits of it, um, drop into those EPs in the middle because they'll give you just more of that, but in a slightly different vein, which is is really great if you like that stuff.
0: Yeah. So really quickly, off off the back of that album, we get to two thousand and two's The Mantle, which is. The, the first album of Agalocks where they slim down to the the free piece they'd remain for most of the rest of their career but make up for that with a ton of guest musicians and this this I'd say if if there is one this is the divisive Agalock album
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I'd agree. So, like, following on from Of Stone, Wind & Pillar, this brings so much, like, acoustic guitar and folky sounds to it. It brings all of the weird instruments um, on songs like Odal and The Lodge they've got a deer skull that they had in studio which they'd strike with a drumstick or something like that and create this really echoing hollow sound of something um echoing within the bone of the deer skull which fits in so nicely to the motif of the album it's got this lovely cover of this you know deer uh, all in grayscale on the front of it and it just adds to that natural feeling that Agalock have always had but this is definitely the folkiest and the most acoustic of their albums and While it does have heavy moments, such as I Am The Wooden Doors, which starts off with this, like, um, uh, double bass, like, quite fast, and then goes to this black metal riff, it all feels a little bit, like, washed out compared to some of the heavier Agalok sections, and I still love this album, but it is a lot of that, it's a long album
0: as well. Yes, so it's almost 70 minutes. So I think the big thing um, around this album, you mentioned there being like a Godspeed, you Black Emperor influence on Don and Co. Apparently that really came in, in the lead up to recording this. Like apparently the band got all a bit jaded with um, the metal scene and really started pulling influence from the kind of Godspeed, Swans, that kind of post-rock that, that that modern wave of it that was coming in in the early 2000s and actually really wanted to do something influenced by that with the mantle which is why as you say this is by far their biggest departure from metal it's it's not really a heavy album i mean i'd still say it sits very much in the metal camp it still has moments of screams and blast beats so i don't think any you know any jazz band's gonna pick this up this <laughs> there? you know primary influence but it's still yeah it's very very different and again another one where you're like this must have been so weird for the time to to do that melding of two genres
1: absolutely in 2002 and and still with those moments that feel like aggressive and epic like this album has so many huge epics on it it's got um in the shadow of our pale companion the first sort of huge song on the album second track is this massive 12 minute, which opens up really slowly with the sort of cleaner electric sounding guitar and weaves that electric guitar really nicely with sort of acoustic leads which sounds amazing and then later on you've got um like a Ghost in My Arms, which has, like, this really, like, metal climaxy parts to it, where it's got really fast double kicks, um, and John screaming, you were but a ghost in my arms, which, yeah, it sounds, it's got these moments where if you picked them out individually, you'd be like, okay, yeah, yeah, no, I get what that is, that's definitely metal, but so much of the texture and the surrounding of it feels like a folk band who, for some reason, have picked up a metal band studio for the day
0: yeah and actually the the metal i think largely comes from don's guitar playing in this actually in a lot of places like his lead guitar work on this album really stands out for me like a lot of those kind of melodic passages he comes in with are what makes this an interesting record like the the acoustic folky passages are great but the melding of those so smoothly with the electric guitar stuff is i found what really made this exciting for me and it's it's doing
1: that in a way which doesn't detract from the value of either. It's very easy. I mean, if you look up on YouTube, like, um, I remember there was the thing where Dave Mustaine did an electric guitar solo over an orchestra. And it was <laughs> it, it was god-awful. You know, like, it sounded so out of place. The tone of the guitar was completely wrong. And it just sounded like meaningless shredding over the top of something which might have sounded quite nice without it and it's completely different here the electric guitars and the acoustic guitars complement each other perfectly and that you know that's a hard thing to get right and particularly when it's spread so much throughout the album over parts which are slow and mellow and sad through to the more aggressive parts of the album as well
0: and i think this this touched on one of the things aglock are really brilliant out of like they've always been quite a simplistic band in a lot of ways like their their music often does a lot of stuff with doing a huge amount with just letting one note hang for an inordinately long amount of time and the reason they get away with this so much is because they're a band who clearly put all their time into tone and getting the sound they want out of everything like their mm. their albums always just sound particularly from this point onwards sound incredible like the recording quality just like the way they've chosen to mix the guitars as you say the way they can get electric and acoustic to fit together they must spend so much time choosing the tone that doesn't over overpower or just awkwardly clash.
1: Yeah, and, and throughout things like Sculptured as well, in the first two Sculptured albums, the lead guitar tones are phenomenal. Um, even, you know, in the early stuff with Agalock, when there's recording parts which just don't sound quite right, like I think the bass in Agalock gets better and better as it goes on. But the lead guitar of Don Anderson, like, always sounds amazing. Like, it cuts through so clearly, and it sounds so melodic, and yet has that aggressive edge to it
0: at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Something you sort of brought up earlier, this album does have a bit of like their first proper like delving into slightly meandering stuff. The uh the twelve minute track, the the Hawthorne Passage, for me starts amazingly and then the whole second half I just couldn't care less about. I don't yeah. I don't know if you have that kind of reaction with it.
1: Yeah, so Yeah, again, the beginning of the Hawthorne passage is amazing. It's got some of those really groovy riffs that we had on Pale Folklore. Um, I don't mind the second half, but it is that point where... And and weirdly, it probably comes to a head on what is probably my favourite album, Ashes Against the Grain, where there's just a little bit too much of that ambience with not much happening. Um, So I'd largely agree that this is the point where it needs to be used sparingly and effectively...
0: I think it's that idea of doing something that long and ambient when you're already 55 minutes into what is quite (laughs) a kind of a mellow, you know, introspective album anyway is the kind of point I think, especially when I was listening to this when I was a bit younger, I went, Oh fuck this. I'm done. Like that's that's enough. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And it's got, it's, it's got sort of really interesting, like intro and outro of a celebration for the death of man is, um, it's one of the first things I learned on the guitar actually, because it's just a really simple set of chords. Um, And it it just sounds really nice. It does a really nice thing of where Agaloc mix majors and minor chords to give this like, you know, just quite softly sad vibe to everything. Um, And then at the end, there's a Desolation song, which has more of John's sort of um, spoken word kind of whispered stuff on it. Um, and while like sometimes this song is really silly, I do find it really quite a touching song um, and about sort of the end of the world and the end of nature and all of the, the nihilism that goes with that um, and just sitting by the fire. Um, what I do love about this is that in 2019, there was a performance of it where Don Anderson played it live with Austin Lund from Panopticon. Um, and that live performance is, is just perfect. Like it's Austin Lund doing not really his sort of, country vocals but just sort of like quietly talking in that like country american way and it fits so perfectly um it's a really beautiful song but again has very little to do with the metal side of Agalock it's pretty much just an acoustic folky country song
0: yes yeah, so there's an interesting sort of story to this one of like uh, it's it's mainly based around a mandolin piece and apparently this shows where Agalog had become way more of a democracy. Apparently this was the song that the band had a big falling out over that John did not want it on the album at all. And Don kind of really dug his heels in to keep it as the closer. And I think I think it's a song entirely written by Don because he really wanted it on the mandolin. And uh, John just thought it's, it's not... It doesn't feel right for the band. But it's since become kind of a popular track of theirs. And actually, that Panopticon cover is really interesting, because when I was first listening to this, I was thinking, this track sounds like a massive influence on Panopticon. Yeah. And, yeah. and the fact that, yeah, he, that's basically confirmed if he's out <laughs> doing a cover of it. I have seen the cover in question, yeah, and it's, it's really decent. And yeah. um, it shows it translates from mandolin to acoustic guitar really nicely
1: i mean i would i would love to see like don anderson at this point do some stuff with austin lunn um and like i don't know do a side project or do some guitars with panopticon or something i think that'd be amazing their styles would be so interesting like that mix of country with the more folky neoclassical
0: direction that don anderson's coming from i think that'd be that'd be great yeah that's that's a fantastic idea uh, the um the other thing I want to mention for this album is this is definitely the last um Agaloc album where they recorded it with absolutely no intention of playing it live hence the kind of the kind of long nature of a lot of the songs this is clearly something that would only work in a studio setting like I don't think I don't think they would do i think a lot of the mantle tracks wouldn't survive that well in a live gig setting
1: yeah and um like with all the additional instruments like the deer skull and stuff you just have to have someone come up on stage with a deer skull to hit it like four or five (laughs) times in one song so all of those extra elements you can see how they get more streamlined from this point with songs which do work much better in a live setting
0: So jumping on from that, um, I have to somewhat take back what I was saying about um Agalok EPs, because we get quite soon after that two two more EPs in two thousand three and two thousand and four. Firstly, tomorrow will never come, which is feels like the most ridiculous, like uh I, I don't know what the point in it is. It's seven minutes long. <laughs>
1: So I uh, yeah, it, it's a song. it's not an EP. it should be a single. Now, I love the song. I think it's great, um, but it is a little bit bizarre. Um, it's this like long acoustic piece. Um, with these really haunting, like, soft acoustic guitars, which um, it feels like a little bit of a departure from their more, like, nature-inspired stuff because this one is very much focused on the ideas of mental health and it has these samples in it. Um, I've been t- I've been trying to track down exactly what the samples are from. Um, they're from a man called Gerald who has um, uh, schizophrenia and they're him talking about, you know, the fact he, you know, just doesn't have fun and all of the time is difficult and stressful. And it I find it really quite emotional and haunting. Um, I think it's some of their best use of samples, but it's really weird to release it as an EP because it, it's one song.
0: Yeah, it, it's what is like. I didn't get a great deal from it but I think it's something I listened to it to like probably like two times ahead of this and cuz it's like 7 minutes it's kind of so blinking, you'll miss it that I pretty just didn't focus on it enough. <laughs> yeah. I I guess the real question with it comes of like how it was sold cuz like looking on Metal Archives apparently it was like a 7-inch vinyl limited to 500 copies so you know maybe it was more of a like a nice collector's item rather than something to be taken deeply serious in their catalogue yeah yeah i
1: think it's the thing like if you enjoy the acoustic elements of Agalog, like if you really like the ytp which we'll get onto, like this is worth you know picking up or giving a listen because it's it's a similar thing but addresses a slightly different topic and i think does so in a very interesting way
0: yeah and that brings us on to another like a proper departure from their sound ep (laughs) with the gray
1: the Grey is really weird, um, and it gets weirder as it goes on. It's got um, some reimaginings of Songs from the Mantle, so it's got a reimagining of O'Dal um, and The Lodge, and then it goes into Shadow Dub, which is like a folk dubstep remix by... Um, of various different sort of parts, like it's got chord progressions that feel very familiar from early albums like The Mantle, but then it's been sort of like slightly taken apart and rebuilt into this like weird pseudo dubstep thing. Uh, it was made by Agalock drummer Chris Green, largely as a joke um, from what I can find in the interviews, and then just sort of put on the end of this EP. Uh, so I really like the idea of doing alternate versions of the songs, and, and it is quite interesting having a very ambient reimagining, less with the acoustic guitar, more with this ambient soundscape focus of Odal and the Lodge. And then Shadow Dub comes on and he's just like, what?
0: Sorry, the internet just cut out there briefly for Rob. Um, so yeah, you were talking about the the Grey EP.
1: Yeah, I think uh, sort of overall, it's really interesting to hear the ambient reworks of two songs from earlier and hear what it could have sound like if a completely different approach was taken. Um, but it does feel like one of those things where it's just here's a fun idea rather than here's like a properly realised like musical idea or direction that Agalock will be going in in the future.
0: I uh, personally it did nothing for me. I think it's another one of those where I I just don't think I'll ever revisit it again now.
1: I do find Shadow Dub really funny because the idea of
0: Agalock having like an electronic remix uh really tickles me. Yeah, that that is that is definitely even by their standards a very out there idea. <laughs> Okay, so um, there's something I want to talk about because in the research for this, I think I've delved into a few other side projects I don't think Rob's heard so much of. And one that's quite an interesting one is the sort of um, Israeli-American crossover uh, Subterranean Masquerade. So their first EP comes out around the same time, 2004, with Jason Walton playing bass for it. And... This is a really fun kind of sort of mellow prog slash kind of folky metal uh band. Kind of Mabul era Orphan Land. It's a lot of um mm. this EP is just two quite long songs that do these great kind of build-ups from kind of melodic, gentle um prog rock into kind of more more extreme kind of death metal stuff, as, as a very much in the Orphan Land vein. Um, it also features Andy Winters on keyboard, who is a character that will keep sort of popping up in, throughout um, the kind of side projects of Agalock's discography. He's a, a famous sort of Norwegian prog metal musician, like he's involved in bands like Age of Silence. But yeah, this I think is a really, actually really, really decent this EP. It's a, it's only twenty minutes long, but Subterranean Masquerade have something kind of unique going on in their sound, and they've Jason was only with them for this first release, but they go on to do some really progressive, out there albums. Like they they kind of get more and more out there as it goes. So yeah, if you want to give something a bit more out there a go this is one of the better realized side projects i came across
1: and i suppose it's a good point to just like briefly talk about like jason's a really interesting bass player like he spans so many different genres in the side projects and bands that he's been involved with you know he's been incredibly productive um, and particularly as the bass sound gets better and better produced in Agalok as we go on the textures that he creates with the bass are always so like warm and complementary to what the guitars are doing, and as we were talking about earlier, just finding that tone that sits really nicely with that interplay of acoustic and electric. Like he's done that really, really well and provides an incredibly solid backing and rhythm section, particularly in like the earlier stages of Agalog before Aesop Decker joins on drums
0: yeah yeah definitely and he's he's a character that's well worth looking up for some of the musical stuff he's done like he just has a wealth of projects like he does a lot of kind of like ambient drone stuff as well which i've not really delved into and has like myriad projects i I've, I've find it quite hard to find a lot from but he, yeah he's someone who is clearly always extremely musically active or even more so than the other kind of free members of this band mm. who are. You know, famed for having a lot going on.
1: And if you, um, yeah, I was going to say it's, it's worth checking out his podcast as well, particularly if you're interested in hearing from other members of Agalock. He does a really cool interview of Don Anderson, where Don Anderson then plays um, an Agalock song acoustically and talks about what it's like playing those songs after the breakup, which is the I Hate Music podcast, um, which is, yeah, definitely worth checking out if you're interested in just like musicians getting drunk together and having a chat. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, while recommending each other increasingly obscure music. Yeah. <laughs> to the point where some of the episodes delve into stuff that uh, are, is way too obscure for even my tastes. <laughs> <laughs> or too, yeah, just out there. But yeah, it, it's a really interesting podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so this brings us quite neatly into the basically mass, the biggest change, I think, in Aglock's Sound, where with 2006, we get their... Third album, Ashes Against the Grain, which just is... to
1: quickly, uh, just to quickly, Oops. jump in there before that, if that's all right. um In two thousand and four, they also have a split with the Finnish band Nest, which is a is a tiny little album. It's just one song from Agalok, but it's one of my favourite of their acoustic songs. um It's Wolves of the Timberline, which takes a riff that you can find on Pale Folklore. I can't remember which song it's on. Um, but it takes a riff from that and expands it into this, like, I think it's about um, four or five minute long acoustic passage, which features sort of lots of ambient noise, like the howling of uh, wolves, string sections, um, and the rushing of wind in the background, um, followed by Nest doing another sort of very nature-inspired song afterwards. And I, it's, it's a tiny little thing, but I really like that song and think it's one of the best parts of... Um Agalock doing that atmospheric
0: acoustic guitar segment. Oh, this is cool. I've completely missed this one in my research. I'll have to check that one out afterwards.
1: Yeah, it's 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 a tiny split. So um it's yeah, it's
0: easily looked over. Yeah, so um kind of almost completely at odds to this. What I was gonna say leading up to Ashley Against the Grain is where the band finally decided to be a live band. Um they recruited Chris Green on drums uh, for this album, who I don't think has a great deal of other sort of musical outlets I'm aware of, and yet yeah, wrote an album with the intention of performing the songs live. So they, 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 this whole album is way more focused on big riffs, groovy sections, the way less of the kind of atmospheric. Um, Slow stuff, way less of the acoustic guitar or other instruments. It's very much arranged for two guitars, bass and drums.
1: Yeah, and we've we've talked about this album before, like uh, quite quite a few episodes ago, but um it's the progressive metal of the Agalok albums. And you can tell that sort of from the get-go, from the beginning of limbs it's got this, like, quite high-pitched keyboard sound, which fades in and around a little bit, like, putting you in that atmospheric place. And I think this is a bit where Agalot use ambience really effectively, because the build, it gets higher and higher pitched, and if you're listening to this with headphones, it can, a- it can actually get a little bit like, God, will this please stop? And then suddenly it comes in with the really driving, like, big, powerful-sounding riff of limbs, uh, which builds and builds. It's a really simple riff, but it keeps adding in extra bits of guitar melody over the top of it and it's really really powerful and emotional and it's a fantastic song to watch live because of that Um, and even when Agalot became a live band they live in all sorts of different parts of America so they would perform fairly rarely Um, and when they did do these live performances you know it was a really sort of big deal Uh, and I mean I was really really fortunate that I got to see them twice in 2015 like right before they sort of broke up the year afterwards Uh, and their live shows are really powerful they put a hell of a lot into the shows and yeah the songs on this album stand out massively as incredible live experiences
0: yeah so I I only got to see Agalok the once which was like opening a day at Bloodstock so their set I think it was four songs and they did Limbs and Falling Snow off this album if yeah, I remember right Yeah, and possibly Dark Matter Gods of the Serpent Sphere as well yes, I think. Yes they did um, It was an amazing set but yeah half an hour did not feel like enough time for Agalok and definitely one of those where a lot of people, I guarantee in the campsite, did not get out of bed and now will eternally regret that they missed the band like because they broke up not long after that.
1: Yeah, um, and this album is... I think, again, it really cements how crucial Don Anderson's leads are to Agarloc. Um There's some absolutely beautiful moments in this. Falling Snow has got a really powerful lead over the top of it. But I would suggest that even better than that is... Um, Bloodbirds, which is one which did become a bit of a live staple on some of their gigs, which just has this absolutely haunting guitar on it, where, you know, it really feels like the guitar is sort of screaming in, like, desolation at various points. It's It's really soft and subtle. There's nothing hugely technical going here. But the, like, the precise bends and the way that sound comes across is so, so emotive. Like, there's bits where the sort of vibrato and stuff feels quite bluesy in the amount of emotion it's getting across just in, like, a little bend.
0: Well, I think actually an incredible example of that is the very start of the album, that opening of limbs, that, like, just sitting on one note for so long. Yeah. But it actually really creating an atmosphere because of... You know, the the slight vibrato, the tone he's gone for. It's really an incredibly powerful track. Actually, the whole, the whole of this album kind of fits in that vein of quite simplistic, but ha- having a huge kind of emotive punch with it. And just being super memorable as well. I find this is easily, especially up to this point, easily the most engaging thing they've written, where it's not so much like drift off into the atmosphere as it is just not along with the cool riff yeah
1: yeah and um There's, but there's still those bits of atmosphere here which draw you in. Thinking about songs like um, Not Unlike the Waves or Fire Above, Ice Below. Not Unlike the Waves begins with this like really sort of like almost water-like guitar which just sort of floats there and then slowly brings in the drums and the bass and adding this groove over the top of it which builds into this really powerful drum fill and then into this groove that feels like it could have come out of like sort of late early Bathory. Um, and then fire above ice below, which has these like sort of atmospheric like whispered vocals on them as well. There's an awful lot of learning in terms of how to build that texture and that atmosphere that they've taken from the more atmospheric early albums and then have deployed really effectively into these much sort of tighter um, more aggressive and powerful songs to just add that little extra bit to it, which is really hard to do unless you've spent all that time experimenting
0: with it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I think most people would agree this is like a a definite highlight moment of their career because it's just, as you say, it's so tightly written. Like, although it's almost an hour long, there's really very little fat on it other than the couple of interludes, I would say. Yeah,
1: so, so yeah, again, this is really the only criticism I have of it is um, Our Fortress is Burning 1 is sort of fine. It's about five minutes. It comes before Bloodbirds, which... Bloodbirds is fantastic. Um but the first bit like that could have been trimmed a bit I think as that build up to Bloodbirds uh, cuz and Bloodbirds comes in as such a like soft um intro which builds into something so epic. You know, it comes in with the uh, Don Anderson's guitar lead in a really soft and understated way which builds its way up to the tremolo picking and the huge bits of it where um John Horm is screaming the god of man is a failure. Um, and then after that, we get Our fortresses Burning 3, The Grain, which is seven minutes of just sort of fading off. And I like the idea of with a huge album like this, having that gentle fade off at the end into that nothingness from which the album came from. But I just think this pulls it out a little bit too long. When you've had that massive high in Bloodbirds, it then just sort of peters out, um, which is a little bit of a shame.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it it does just feel very much out of kind of wanting to put everything in the album, whereas I think um, Aglock kind of showed that they do things really well, where they stick to a kind of style or idea, like, um, yeah, the moments of this that are all like the kind of the proper songs feel so good. I, I mean, I also feel this white mountain on which you die is completely disposable
1: yeah, I, s- I suppose it's the thing of... It's so short that you hardly notice because it's not even two minutes long. Um, but yeah, that there is a point at which, well, why not just go straight from Falling Snow to Fire Above, Ice Below? Uh, you know, those songs are really tight, really good. Why add the little extra bit of it?
0: Yeah. The the interesting thing with this album is the addition of uh, Chris Green's drumming as well. Like He... He sounds tighter than, um, than John did, and I don't know if that's purely a recording thing, but he sounds immensely tight on this album. Um, but there is sort of also tonally total, totally different, whereas like John's drumming on the first album is very subtle. In this, the snare is like this overpowering wall of sound,
1: yeah, so I do believe um, from Metal Archives, uh, John does play drums on falling snow um, and not unlike the waves. Uh, okay. so they sort of swap over drumming duties a little bit but Chris is definitely some of those like big fills and stuff which you're not used to seeing in Agalock very much come through more here and yeah the sound has changed a lot it's much less understated than it is on albums like The Mantle it's more to the forefront and this is a really interesting evolution which will become so much more once you get Aesop Decker in as
0: well That's interesting is John on drums. Um, Yeah, I will say, I think the snare is actually a bit overpowering on this album. I think it possibly is a bit, because it doesn't sound very, it's so intense, it doesn't sound very natural, whereas like we'll get into this with later drumming stuff, they go back to a more natural sound.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'd agree, and I think Agalok have always traded off that ability to sound really like nature, like they're channeling those elements of the natural world, and that does take away a little bit.
0: well that that brings us on to um uh an interesting release of theirs um two years later we get the white ep uh yeah do you want to you want to lead on this one rob
1: yeah so so i love the white ep the white ep is basically Agalock just do a little acoustic folk album um like that Olver album that i can never remember the name of um but it's you know it's those full neo-folk acoustic guitars, it's got this literary inspiration to it, similar to some of the other parts we'll come up to Agaloc, um with Faustian Echoes. It's very much inspired by the Wicker Man, um, and has lots of samples taken out of the old Wicker Man films. Starts off with the We Carry Death Out of the Village, um, and the songs like Summer Isle and Summer Are a Prize at the end, and... Um, It's that side of Aglock that we saw on the mantle with things like Desolation song, just with more of those elements pulled into it, those atmospheric elements, little bits of electric guitar on songs like Pantheist, um, and then songs like Summer Isle Reprise, which is this incredibly beautiful four minutes of just very slow piano taking some of the um, riffs and melodic ideas from Summer Isle and turning that into a piano piece. Um, it's very different particularly from Ashes Against the Grain this is the bit in the chronology of Agalock where you think hold on this was all very you know proceeding in a very smooth linear fashion and then they just throw this in there but I really love it it's very very different to a lot of the bits that Agalock became known for with albums like Ashes Against the Grain and stands out a little but I think it's a really nice distillation of what Agalock do when they're using acoustic instruments
0: so for me um, I first I came across Aglock, I think, first when uh, Ashes the Grain came out. And realistically, like, for up till about 2015, all I really listened to of theirs was uh, Ashes Against the Grain and Marrow of the Spirit. The YTP was the third thing I heard by them. And back in, like, 2011, 2012, when I heard it, I hated it. Like, I just did not get it at all. Revisiting it now, I still don't love it. I think... Um, Birch Black and the Pantheist the two tracks with the electric guitar parts I think are brilliant those two I think really really work I find the acoustic guitar stuff is just too meandering for me I just I don't really latch onto it that well but then maybe that's a lot that just speaks to me not listening to a lot of acoustic guitar driven music because yeah, the acoustic yeah. guitar playing is great like he's like the two because this, this album is just Don and John recording on it with a couple of guests like Jason and uh, I think it'll be Aesop at this point has joined the band are not present on this album at all or EP. sorry yeah yeah
1: no, it's, it's definitely very very different from the other parts but I quite like seeing that electric guitar influence brought into their acoustic stuff
0: Yeah, yeah, it's uh it's it's certainly an interesting like sort of artifact from their career, and I know personally I dislike it, but I think it is yet another one that is like quite widely revered, particularly by and the fans of the early work, because it is that much more focused on acoustic guitar and the way their last three albums totally weren't.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Right, so chronologically this brings us up to an album i think both me and you are really fond of this is currently the final uh sculptured album although they are still apparently active uh embodiment released in 2008 so around the same time as the ytp um the embodiment of this stage is uh andy winters has joined on keyboard uh jason walton and don Anson are both obviously still in the band um Dave Murray's now doing drums from and they have a new clean vocalist in the form of Tom Tom Walling.
1: Yeah, so this this could not be more different from the YTP. Uh this album is absolutely bonkers. Um and Dave Murray gives an amazing drum performance. Um I think the first song I heard of that off this album was um A Moment of Uncertainty. And it's got this sort of like slightly weird staccato guitar riff on it. Um, And then in between all of these sort of like guitar parts the drums are just going bonkers Like there's this crazy like jazz fills going all around the kit Um, and even on the grooves You know, there's these like all these little touches on the snares and dribbling around the toms like there the drum performance gives this so much energy uh, and it's such a contrast to You know, like, a lot of Agaloc has been about holding it down, forming that base on which the atmosphere is built. The drums here are doing everything they can to throw you off,
0: and I kind of love that. Yeah. There there is, um, like, a real like rapid-changing nature to these songs, because none of the tracks are particularly long, but they flick through so many different styles in it, and I think it is, again, like, a structural thing of, like, the drummer just leading them into different weird places throughout it's Yeah, it's a very technical proggy album. I think, like, significantly more so than the first two sculptured, even. Absolutely.
1: It feels very, very different. It feels so much weirder. And you can see that, like, from the cover. The cover is, um, I think it was actually from an illustration by John Horne. Um, And it's this like these bodies that are sort of partially dismembered and opened up Um, And then with songs like taking my body apart and embodiment is the purest form of horror Bodies without organs It's much more unsettling and this comes through to the song structures where they unexpectedly change where there's there's a lot more tension in this music, you know, gone completely is that really positive um thing that we had on the Spear of the Lily. This is a much more like nihilistic and weird album.
0: Yeah. And they, they even play around with like these quite discordant ideas in places. The start of Bodies Without Organs has some very strange, like clashing melodies and yeah, and as you say, the, the positivity is completely gone on this album. It's quite it's quite dark yeah and it's it's
1: got it's got lots of like weird time signatures in it you know things that you'd be used to from Tool or Dream Theater but it it feels unstructured. You know, it feels like it wants to draw your attention to the fact that, hold on, the timing here is not right. This is not for for is happening? It's never like a sort of, oh yeah, you know, like that's a really consistent, like it could be in 7-8 or something, but you'd never know. It always sort of makes you feel, oh, hold on, this is weird. Something's a bit wrong here.
0: Yeah. The, also another thing is the, the trumpet is completely gone from this album. Um, they they've stripped things back a lot. There's like there's no real guests on it, and it's mainly, I guess it was to let Andy Winters shine as like the fifth member doing the sort of the keyboard passages. The other thing I like about this album is I think it's by far and away the best sound you'd ever got. Yeah, because the first two albums are a little rough around the edges recording wise. But this um, one sounds really nice.
1: And building on those keys as well, like the the keys are like really driven to their limit as well, alongside the drums. You know, you get bits of it where the keys sound almost like a theremin at parts. Like you get these really high pitched and weird noises, which yeah, it, it just feels like a lot of the instruments are barely holding together and being made to do things that they really shouldn't be doing. Uh, and I, I really love that. It, It's not, I don't think it's necessarily the most well-received of the Sculptured albums because it's so different to what they've done before. But I absolutely love the experimentation on this. And this was the, you know, the album that really got me into
0: Sculptured. Yeah, yeah. I would say for um, a lot of first-time listeners, this is a good start point for them. But persevere with the clean vocals because they are They are very odd, and I found them a sticking point when I first came across this band. But I've grown to really love them. But he is doing that—you know—that extremely difficult thing of trying to put very kind of catchy, clean, and clear vocal melodies over extremely complex music. Like you know, the idea of taking like Atheist and trying to put a clean vocalist over it (laughs) without doing like. the watchtower thing of just going for like complete falsetto attack like (laughs) so he's had to keep he's tried to keep it as like that's that and the lead guitar is the melodic hook and then the rhythm's all over the place yeah
1: and there's some there's some really nice passages in this where like a lot of the guitars sort of drop back a little bit and you get these like slightly unnerving like bass that comes to the forefront and gives you this like weird groove while the guitars are just like strumming on some weird high notes in it so it's got that really nice balance where it lets different instruments be emphasized at different points throughout.
0: Should we move on to marrow of the spirit? Um, just quickly before that, there's the one
1: Agalok live DVD, um, which is Silence for Forgotten Landscapes, which is interesting for a few reasons. Uh, one, because it has got Aesop Decker on drums, um, who joins providing an enormous boost to Agalok's sort of like primal side um, Aesop has a really sort of powerful and natural drum sound which we'll hear on the later albums um, but hearing him hear with a lot of the old songs like they just have this burst of power to them which really works for the live performance Um, Another couple of interesting things about this is that all of the footage um, is in black and white and grey. This is a complete mistake. Um, The footage from, I think, the main camera didn't save or got corrupted. And they had to use it from a backup camera, but it was only recorded in black and white. But they quite liked that because it looked like a silent film. Um, Adding to that as well, um, John was incredibly unwell when this was filmed. (laughs) Um, like, really, really not um, good from how he describes it. Uh, and they decided to go on with it anyway. And honestly, you can't tell. But apparently, like, he was feeling like he was going to throw up on stage and was hiding his head behind his hair so people couldn't see how horribly ill he looked during the gig.
0: Bloody hell. <laughs> um,
1: which which then inspired him to write one of the songs, which is on Mara of the Spirit, The Watcher's Monolith. Um, and another part that's really cool on this is you get to see Don doing some backing vocals. And um and, and Don looks like a very regular guy. Um, And watching death metal noises come out of his mouth is fantastic.
0: Yeah, because he, he is like normally very well-dressed, short hair, like no beard or anything, and this yeah. tall, skinny guy. He just doesn't look like he would expect him to be the death metal front man of a band. <laughs> no. <laughs> Which he kind of is, especially for early Sculptured. And yeah, him doing the backing vocals for this. Because he gets, like, having seen him live once, he gets really into it on stage as well. I think when I saw him at Bloodstock, he was leaping around so much his guitar strap broke <laughs> at one point. Like, he, he almost dropped his guitar at one point in the set, which is, yeah, again, just not, not what I was expecting from Agaloc, which is really cool.
1: Yeah, yeah, they give that really full-on live performance, which is really, really nice to see from a lot of, like, sort of atmospheric black metal bands who can be very po-faced when they come on stage.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, that's, that's certainly a thing of, like, atmospheric black metal is famously something that often doesn't translate to the live forum well, and I think Agalock managing to make that shift to actually being a really good live band is another reason they're probably kind of quite so well-loved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this, this sort of brings us on to Marrow the Spirit in 2010. So, as Rob said, they've picked up Aesop Decker on drums. If you're not familiar with his work, he's an interesting character. He started off back in like the late 80s as a, um, early 90s, I think, as a kind of punk drummer. And not, not like hardcore punk, like the quite melodic, almost pop punk end of things with a band called uh, The Naked Cult of Hickey. And then he got really into black metal. And at this point in time, I believe he's also playing with Ludicra. Yeah, so he's playing with Ludicra all through the early 2000s, who are Hammers of Misfortunes guitarists. Uh, Like, kind of weird black metal projects. Kind of a very, um, a black metal project very rooted in the ideas of Like cities and personal life and so on rather than that kind of folky side of things but what this meant for the band is this is the first time Agaloc had a proper black metal drummer, someone who could play really, really fast and I think that's where we hear the massive change in sound on Marrow of the Spirit yeah,
1: I, I think this this album's so weird because I was very firmly into Agalok at this point when it came out in twenty ten and um I picked it up and I, I this for me was absolutely the hardest album to get into, um, but the most rewarding to return to. So it, it starts off with this um opening sort of cello and this like this like very watery ambience around everything in the first sort of intro track. And then it gets into the Painted Grey, which is the second track of the album. And you are just blasted with this really rough sounding mix. You've got this powerful blast beat going on, this really fast black metal tremolo picked guitar and this really like quite sad melody that's going on, uh, mixing between the two guitars. And then it all drops off and just comes to two electric guitars sort of interchanging uh, melodies with each other. And, like, it's a really harsh and unpleasant opening to an Agaloc album. If you think back to things like Limbs, Limbs was powerful, but it was majestic and big. This pummels you in the face. It's so much more extreme than anything Agaloc have ever done before. I found this really hard, and for a long time, I really struggled, like, with the first song of this. Uh, And while later in the album it has much more open areas, this album in general is is more aggressive and a lot colder than any other Agalok album. A lot of the others, the riffs feel really warm and open and, you know, while they have harsh moments, it's an overall a quite warm but melancholy feeling. This album is not nice. It's winter. It's horrible. It's about animals dying in the forest. It's much
0: colder than any other Agalok release. It, yeah, it is immensely bleak. Even that um, Jackie Perez of Giant Squid's cello intro is is really dark it actually reminds me a lot of um fortune my foe by akakaka i'm not sure if you're aware mm. of that track yeah but, and does the similar thing of ending that track ends into infernal rites which comes in with like horrendous blasting and this they escape the way of darkness you say like aesop Decker's drumming at the start of that track is so intense with that kind of blast where he's really kind of um going on the ride like the kind of bell of the ride symbol, that kind of like yeah. ting, 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 like which we've never heard him. we've never heard a drummer played like that in Agalot's stuff. And at that, that first track, it, it almost feels like a different band until you get um, some of John's sort of like cleaner vocals. I think later in that song, they come mm. in and you just start going like, oh, that's the voice I'm familiar with. Like, yeah, I had a similar reaction to you when I first heard this album. I... I really wasn't sure. I think as well, like... So this came out 2010, and I think I got it when it came out. I wasn't that into black metal at the time, Mm. and just wasn't prepared for this band to be quite so intense.
1: Yeah, and and particularly because that's probably the most intense moment of the entire album, and they just shove it right up there. Um, But there's some really interesting, like, other experimentation they do on this album, which, coming back to it, is really interesting to explore, all the songs are really long even by Agaloc standards. Um the shortest you've got other than the um intro is just under 10 minutes. Um and then there's songs like um Black Lake Nidstag which is up to like 17 and a half minutes. And this is a really interesting one because it is a massive build uh this song. It's this great build of like not much happening towards the beginning really sad sort of guitar leads um, and melodies building up to, like, I think some of John's finest vocal work. He has these heart-rending screams in this album, which are unlike anything he does at any other point in Agalog. and it feels sort of so real and so painful. It's, it's quite something, but it can be quite hard to listen to because of how raw this album feels, and nothing else Agalog have done has felt that, you know, emotional and visceral.
0: Yeah, yeah. I know what I found really interesting with that track is what they do in the second half of it goes really weird. Like, it descends into, like, this very ambient passage. And then you get that moment of, like, I think it's just Don's guitar playing a, a kind of, like, old prog rock riff, essentially, and then comes back into more of a black metal style. But, yeah, they were definitely experimenting with something weird in this song
1: yeah and then like sort of as a counterpoint to that you have um, the song that immediately follows Ghosts of the Midwinter Fires which is up there as one of my favourite Agaloc songs it's it's got it's got some riffs from Pale Folklore in it which have been recycled into something that's a bit more uplifting emotionally it's got some really nice grooves in it It still has that bleakness that this album sort of embodies, but it has some more uplifting moments as well. It feels very different and a very big contrast, particularly to Black Lake Nidstack from before. Um, Mm. And
0: yeah, it's, it's a really interesting emotional contrast. I really like this track. It's definitely channeling some of that Brave Murder Day, Catatonia influence. But as well as that, um, it really reminded me of a track off Tiamat's Wild Honey, which again, uh two ah. very favourable comparisons to me. Like yeah, it it's it's a brilliant contrast to a lot of the heavier stuff that's happened earlier in this album. Uh something I want to say about this this album as well is like I think this is actually, like now I've come to appreciate it, the best sound the band ever had. I love the way the drums sound. I think I think Aesop Decker's drumming for me revolutionises the band. I know he personally was never happy with what he did drum-wise for the band and kind of felt he ruined it. Because they, they became basically a different band on this album yeah i i
1: fully agree i think the aesop deckers drumming like adds so much of texture and ferocity but as you can see on ghost of the midwinter fires he can still play that karma stuff and he just gives it this really solid bass that they can build from but he gives so much flexibility he adds so much energy some of the fills on this album while they're not you know hugely complicated or these you know magnificent like round the kit death metal style fills they just add this energy to the band which um you know if you could imagine something kind of similar being played on ashes against the grain i think could only have like added more to those epic moments that agaloch have
0: yeah yeah quite possibly and then actually they deploy on this album as well the idea of doing some of the more ambient stuff by putting it in that last track I, I, the final track to, to drown is really ambient. There's like very little vocals, very little actual drumming at all, and it's mainly just this like sort of washed out sound with a, a kind of electric guitar off in the distance and some. I think there's a return of the cello on this track as well. It's um, it's actually them just nailing an ambient track for once. Like actually, like it it's still like a really brilliant moment of this album. I I
1: agree and like tonally it fits so well just because this album is so much bleaker and you're not coming away like you came away from the other albums with this you know sense of the wonder and glory of nature you're coming away thinking about starving to death in a cold forest and that like moment that it gives you at the end and and the lyrics here i really love as well um, they escape the weight of darkness to forge a path into the marrow of the spirit and like some really nice and stuff and with the atmosphere they build up here it's it's really sad really poignant and gives you that time to digest everything that's happened because this is absolutely the busiest and i think most experimental album agalog have to this point
0: Other, other stuff that may interest people from the time period. Uh, an album I couldn't get my head around, a project called Celestial, spelt with two I's, like double I, uh, where life springs eternal, um, is another Jason Walton uh, collaboration, this time with Tanner Anderson of Obsequie. I really thought I was going to like this based on that lineup, but it is such ambient music. Like, this, uh, I got through the first, well, no, I abandoned halfway through the 30-minute long second track because <laughs> just too little was happening. If you're into your really ambient stuff, I think this is well written. I just can't deal with something that is just like that simplistic. I couldn't I couldn't find something to latch onto in it. Uh but that does bring us up to another interesting Agalok EP, one I'm quite fond of. In 2012 we get the Faustian Echoes EP. Uh, which is just one 20-minute long, kind of like more raw black metal track.
1: Absolutely. You can really hear the influence that they had from having Aesop in the band and from having done Marrow, where they have these much more black metal sections. Uh, it's, yeah, like the vocals feel really quite different from what John normally does. They feel much more in the line of slightly more traditional black metal. It still has these really nice bits where it will have these, uh, you know like these melodic, quite melancholic black metal sections, and then it will intersperse that with these um, more mellow sections which have this, like, more tragic feel to them, which really fits with the theme, as this is about um, Dr. Faust making a bargain with Mephistopheles, the devil. Um, and they intersperse a lot of samples and quotes from, um, I presume, film adaptations of this. And it works really nicely. They do a really good job of adding that emotional atmosphere through the music through these you know variety of techniques and genres that they take influence from to add that emotion to that story
0: yeah i, I just think this is for me their best use of an ep doing it is like this one 20 minute song which is quite a lot to digest um because because of it's kind of intensity early on and kind of the bleakness of it in the second half um yeah this this is something where I wouldn't begrudge paying full price for a release like this because it seems like a huge amount went into it and it wasn't so much of them playing with like a weird idea of just finding, Oh, we've got something that's too out there to go in the middle of an album. This, this has to sit by itself. Yeah.
1: And doesn't fit either thematically or musically with the other, you know, ideas they're putting on albums.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other interesting thing is, like, yeah, as Rob says in the second half, we do get some kind of move away from the more extreme end of black metal. There's even like guitar solos and stuff later on. But the interesting thing with this, I think it's the only release they've ever done with no clean vocals, other than the totally instrumental ones. Yeah, I think that's true, actually. Yeah, which, yeah, gives it this very different feeling. But yeah, so that that was an interesting primer to 2014's uh final album for the band, The Serpent and the Sphere. Where do you stand on this one, Rob?
1: So, Serpent and the Sphere is a really interesting one. Um If anything, I think it slightly suffers from being a little less ambitious than what comes before it. Um I really like it. I think it's got some it's got a really nice sound. I think I'd agree with you that. The rawness of Mara of the Spirit I slightly prefer, but again, the bass sound on this is really nice, really prominent. It's somewhat of a synthesis of the rawness of Mara of the Spirit with the emotional balance that they had on albums like Folklore and Ashes Against the Grain. Um, its structure is a bit bizarre it starts off with um the birth and death of the pillars of creation which stands out really starkly against the rest of the album as this one like sort of 10 minute statement um which feels like a continuation and full idea in and of itself and then the rest of the album very much feels a bit separate to it Um, which is quite interesting as a start but it does this huge build in the um, first song off of these gentle acoustics to this really big electric moments which feel quite ashes against the grainy with how big and doomy and huge some of these
0: guitar moments are without that black
1: metal fury that you get in some elements of Marrow
0: yeah I the, that first track really stood out to me as like a, a kind of highlight moment of this. And yeah, then you get that quite distinct change into like track three and four, the Astral Dialogue and Dark Matter Gods are very much channeling the Ashes Against the Grain, like really catchy, melodic stuff, completely with the like Dark Matter Gods having that kind of key change in the middle of the chorus, which is like a, a, like ag- as close as Agalog gets to doing like an Iron Maiden moment. Like... <laughs> it's sort of it both are like really catchy songs but i do feel this album lacks something in being without question the least experimental album the band ever did
1: yeah i, I think that's true and there's so there's still some of the stuff that Agalock do so perfectly like um i think my favorite song off of it is um plateau of ages which comes right at the end and it's this it's very much in the may, in the sort of uh like from the early like pale folklore some of the big epics from that it very much feels like that and it's got this masterful interweaving of the different guitar melodies carrying huge amounts of the album and adding so much of this different texture and so many different things you can hear it's got that really prominent bass as well which now with Aesop Decca forms this incredibly like tight rhythm section which can sort of change on a dime from adding lots of power um, to like really being quite reserved like some of aesop's drumming on dark matter gods using a lot of like rim shots on the snare drum um rather than actually like really going into it which we haven't heard on any other Agalok before so that variation's really nice but it's more of the their playing has got really really good the ideas on here while interesting are nothing we haven't seen before
0: There's, there's a lot of... Me and Rob are going to continue on because there's a lot of other bands and projects we want to talk about, but I think here's the point to kind of wrap up what we were talking about in terms of Agaloc, because around this time, the band would come to quite an unsatisfying close, essentially. Uh, two years later, uh, after like some extensive touring where the band seemed to be doing really well, there was this big fallout between john and the other three members like not so much a public fallout as just like the band was suddenly done and john sort of put out a statement which he got absolutely crucified for where he sort of claimed that the band had always been his thing yeah and and as you can see like sort of me and rob going through the history of this it's quite clear that even from the first demo other people had a hand in this like Him to to sort of play down Jason and Don's kind of contributions, I think, was, yeah, career suicide for him. But whatever reason, the the band hit this kind of point of irreconcilable differences and went off in their their various directions. Um, We should probably touch on the, the thing John then committed, like, Absolute career suicide. Straight after this, uh, well, not straight. I think it was like 2019. That that's yeah, I think I think it was of. 2019. Yeah. So there was a few few things that like we'll get into some of the side projects, but I think we may as well continue this first. Um, he went off and formed Pilorian I a band I never really got into. I don't know. If you had anything to particularly say about them.
1: I mean, this this was the sort of thing where, to me, it made it very clear that, at least from my perspective, the bits about Agalok that I, like, loved so much are primarily Don Anderson just being an amazing guitar player. Um, because Pelorian, like, they take it very much down the more black metal end of Agalok and just ended up being a little bit unremarkable in my opinion they were perfectly good perfectly serviceable like solid black metal be really fun to like go watch them at a festival or something but they didn't have that like magic that agaloc had that uniqueness that blend of so many different influences and genres
0: yeah so sort of not long after that album came out John posted a horrible anti-Semitic statement on Facebook and I think from my personal point of view that was enough for me to sort of go well fuck this guy I don't I don't want to see anything new from him and I've not really heard anything since that has made me change that opinion what's interesting is he did at least have the rest of the band sort of kind of say like I don't think this is like how he actually feels like he never really said this before. Yeah, so it was it was
1: good to see that, you know, Aesop, Don, and um, Jason all came out and just condemned this and said, look, this is absolutely wrong. Like, this is weird, but it's definitely wrong and we disavow all of this. This is not what Agalok is about, which was kind of nice to hear because, you know, if you have a really strong emotional connection to music and then you find out, like you know the person who made it is a terrible person or says some awful shit you start to like sort of corrupt the way you feel about that so that was really nice to see that you know particularly with Don and Jason who played such a big role in writing and creating that music that for them that wasn't a part of it at all since then um don has said that he is um made up with john um they're sort of friends again but the other thing he said that he was really really clear to john um when he spoke to him that the stuff that he put on facebook was completely unacceptable and has explained to him many times why that was such a terrible thing to do particularly in the black metal scene which has enough racism as it is
0: Um, yeah yeah and 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 the fact these are about a band that straddles kind of black metal and neo-folk which is another prime kind of anti-semitic area so i i mean as i say the point i'm i'm at with i don't mind talking about old Agalock, but i could not give a fuck about whatever john does now i'm kind of short of some incredible like retraction statement i I don't think I'm ever going to really give a shit about what he's doing after this point.
1: Yeah, I suppose it's, it seems to me one of those things where this has been kind of quite well handled in a way because all the other band members came out and said absolutely not. This has nothing to do with the music, which like is is great because you absolutely have to disavow this stuff and say no, this is unacceptable. Like we we will not accept racism in any form, and also that they you know say that's not part of the music that they wrote, which, you know, from a selfish perspective, makes it easier for me to enjoy old Daggerlock. But, as you say, don't really care
0: what John is doing now. You say every came ever against it. Except for Aesop Decker, who just (laughs) laughed at it remorselessly. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... (laughs) He deserved it, so... <laughs> yeah, oh, totally. No, no. there is nothing wrong with that reaction. But, but particularly because Aesop Decker is a Jewish guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, you can have whatever reaction he wants to the back of that. But yeah, so that's kind of... The, the sad thing is that's kind of a, a tragic end to the the story of Agalog of they're always going to have this sort of um, just real, like, smear on their memory, which is a shame because they... They're a band that undoubtedly were incredibly influential on in a lot of stuff we really like. I mean, we've mentioned Panopsicon before, but I even stuff like um, oh, why am I blanking the name? Uh, Obsequie, I, I think there's definitely an influence there, taking the idea of those incredibly melodic lead passages, and the yeah, the thing I want to get in sort of get into as well is a lot of the other members of the band have gone on to do a hell of a lot of really interesting stuff since so you don't mind if we run through these kind of like chronologically because i've done yeah. a fair amount of listening on a few other projects yeah let's do it so one one i really enjoyed and was amazed i'd never even heard of ahead of this was self spillers worm in the keys from 2015 this is a collaboration i think it features both uh Don and Jason, as well as Mariah McCannibal from Psy. Uh, I believe Andy Winters is involved in this as well. This album is it's like if you took sort of a lot of elements of Sculptured, a lot of elements of Psy, and then put it in more electronical freak-out moments. So it's, uh, it is an intense album. It is so experimental and odd. I kind of I, th- I think the moments of it that are absolutely brilliant. Like a song like uh, Ross on the Root is amazing and actually channels more of that, like, kind of a Felduaf energy or maybe even, like, some of Andy's winter's kind of, like, Age of Silence stuff. But then there's stuff that is just absolutely ridiculous and I can't understand. The, the third track, Like Free Asps, has two minutes of great kind of Psy-style, like modern Psy, that is, a uh, very melodic uh, off-kilter black metal but then in the middle there is what i can only explain as sounding like a solo played on a half-inflated balloon <laughs> with no accompaniment <laughs> and i don't know what the hell that was it's it's like, really hard to listen to um yeah um the the sort of also the electronica moments that they will be you'll have like a quite relatively normal song will just like explode into like as I say an electronic freak out section you'll get 50 seconds of bizarre like static noise and kind of electronic drum beats and then it'll back into real drums there's a few other moments towards the middle of the album that have like a real like Arcturus Sham of Mirrors vibe which I'm really into like yeah th- this album it shines in the melodic stuff The the kind of really experimental end of it possibly a bit much. different vein another project jason was involved in in the same year because i I swear that guy has a normal job as well i don't know how he has (laughs) time for all of this Uh, is the band uh with navigating the labyrinth and this is an incredibly kind of folky project so the album starts off with this four minute long like acoustic intro with uh Don doing like a guest solo over the top of it and it's like pure Agaloc lead but then the rest of the album is this more kind of um, mellow folky thing with um, these kind of slightly lower clean vocals that kind of sound like this sort of like reminiscent of medieval folk it sounds it sounds like very British folky to me. Um, but with uh, like a little hint of metal in there as well. It, I thought this is a really interesting album. It's very subtle. But you can slightly see the relation to Agalok, but it's certainly taking some of that... It's, I guess it's not a neo-folk influence. It's like a really, really old folk influence. Uh, one you've heard that is definitely worth checking out, although I can't say... I still can't say if it's good or not... ...is Snare of Six's... uh, ...Yeast Mother and Electroacoustic Mass... ...which is like a 20 minute long EP... ...from all the guys from Sculptured... ...playing a load of synths... ...and like electronic stuff... ...and just making one of the most like... ...abrasive, intense... ...like hard to follow... ...avant-garde noise projects going
1: yeah it's it's such a weird one it's one of the ones i've listened to a little bit of and was just sort of like look there are bits of this that i think are great um and i love like the weird song titles like yeast Mother and stuff and that's great but then there's so many bits of it where i'm like i just don't know what's happening like maybe this is too extreme in a sense for me
0: (laughs) yeah like um there's a particularly haunting moment in it where jason does this speech about like someone grabbing his like lower intestine and pulling all his organs out through (laughs) through his body but while he's doing this slow speech of it there's like this auto-tuned clean singing voice saying each line like out of time with him in the background (laughs) it's it's really intense but it's certainly an interesting uh uh, project.
1: And, and just looking Sl- at Jason's uh, Metal Archives page as well, like I mean it's, it's terrifying it's one of those pages like Hannah's Grossman or something where you think these are far too many bands. One that stands out to me in past bands is especially likely Sloth um, <laughs> <laughs> which apparently he played everything in from 1995 to 2016 but they have no releases or a Metal Archives page.
0: I think because him more so than a lot of the members of his band, if much of his projects are so far removed from the world of uh, of metal. Like it wouldn't, it, you wouldn't be able to find it there. If you want to hear more of his stuff, like if you enjoy the kind of snare of sixes sound, go to his personal bandcamp page. He's got loads of singles and like collections of tracks he's done up there. I didn't get through anywhere near, like, like even like half of it. But um, and it, a lot of it sits in that vein of like this is so far removed from anything I listen to because if you listen to his podcast his music taste is so eclectic yeah. <laughs> all of it quite strange and intense as well <laughs> right this brings us on to an album you want to talk about Rob which technically doesn't actually fit with the theme but is related enough and we couldn't think of another uh, another episode to put it in we thought we'd stick it in here Yeah, so
1: it's a bit of a weird one. Um, The Link is the, sort of after the end of Agaloc, the two bands formed um, Pilorian with John um, and Corrada with Don, Jason and Aesop. Um, And they welcomed uh, AJ Gregory from Giant Squid who came to join them on guitar and vocals. Um, AJ is, also has been on um, Jason's podcast, which is a really weird episode, where they both just get incredibly drunk. Um, But, uh, He's been in a whole bunch of interesting bands, has a really like non-metal sort of taste in music, but joined Carada, worked with them and created a really interesting album that we'll talk about in a bit. But they also had another side project after the sort of disbanding of Giant Squid, which I feel fits in well enough that we could talk about it. So it's a band called Squalus, which basically features old members of Giant Squid, Um, AJ on vocals and bass, um, Zach Farwell on drums, and Andy Southard on keys and samples. And um, I quite enjoyed this, looking at their Metal Archives page. Peter Benchley, who is the author of Jaws on um, lyrics. (laughs) Uh, And um, Squalus, which is the genus name of Dogfish, which are small sharks, is a Jaws-themed metal band with all sorts of weird influences they have described themselves as jaws themed punk sludge shark grind metal band now (laughs) i don't really buy the grind but everything else is pretty much true um they're a really interesting band because they don't use any guitars it's just bass Um, and when they play live it's either with just one bass or with two basses The first album and the only full length they've put out is The Great Fish, uh, which is all themed around Jaws. One thing they don't do, which there'd be a huge temptation to do if you did this, is ever actually play the Jaws theme. And I'm really thankful they don't do that, because that would be a really cheap way to cash in on it. But what they do manage to do is capture a shark attack in sound, uh, which I think is fantastic. Like, this album is really, really varied, and it's one that I've come back to quite a few times, not really sure what on earth I think of it, um, but I've liked it more and more each time I've come back. So it's got sections which feel like aggressive, like hardcore punk or metal songs, like Town Meeting, which is all about someone offering to kill the shark in Jaws, but it's incredibly like aggressive and brutal, and the whole album has this incredible low end because the bass is taking everything like all of the melodies are either on the keys or on bass and the place where a rhythm guitar would be it's a bass so the thing when they like hit big doomy notes it sounds enormous this album doesn't have a chunky distortion like you might find in a metal album but it has this rumble to it which is terrifying in the right parts and then it has songs like "Swim, Charlie, Swim," which is this creepy piano instrumental, which halfway through suddenly gets super heavy. And then possibly the standout track is um, USS Indianapolis, which is um, a real story about a the USS Indianapolis, a American ship, which was carrying um, parts of Little Boy, which was one of the world's first atomic weapons. Um, It was sunk by the Japanese Navy in the July of 1945. Um, 890 men went into the water and only 316 survived. Um, The rest died from exhaustion, exposure and shark attacks. And this is captured in what is really quite a terrifying song when it gets to it. It starts off with, you know, a lot of melodies and stuff. Um, But then as it gets to the bit where the ship sinks it like drops back and just these huge bass hits with like slow drums in between with AJ sort of narrating what it's like to be stuck in that situation, which I believe again comes from Peter Benchley from Jaws um, of being slowly taken by sharks. And this bit is so doomy, but not in a traditional doom way. And I think that's just really, really interesting Um, The other thing worth saying about the story as well is that because the ship was carrying part of an atomic bomb, no one knew where it was or its mission because it couldn't broadcast its own location. So when it went down, no one knew that that had happened. And that's why so many people died as a result of it. And then this album has parts like... Uh, Jack the Ripper, which is like an amazing job of building tension through music. they they have their dialogue here where they're describing um a shark attack victim um and what the bite marks suggest. Um, but then as it builds up to the song saying, you know, this wasn't this wasn't um a boating accident, this wasn't a coral reef, this wasn't Jack the Ripper, this was a shark. Like the bass comes in massively and delivers these huge hits. Um, It's a really really weird and interesting album, it's got loads and loads of like weird keyboard melodies which sit super sort of high in contrast to this thundering bass at the bottom. So many melodies played using the bass which is really really interesting. Um, they did then go on to release uh, Mass and Power, which is a split with the band Shadow Limb, which again is like quite similar to some of the more normal songs on The Great Fish. Um, it's fine, it just doesn't have the like crazy variation that The Great Fish does. And I think, again, that's what makes it so interesting, is it has this like massive variation between these incredibly slow doomy sections and then this mix of like um weird synth and piano and the narration from jaws uh, it's it's a really weird interesting album and i it's a one that's really hard to fit with anything else other than giant squid uh so yeah definitely check it out if you're interested in kurada or giant squid or something like
2: that
0: Salt by the one and only release by Carrada.
1: Yeah, so I was really disappointed to find out in this research that Carrada had very quietly disbanded in November of last year. Because um, I thought Salt was a really like interesting combination of some of the like sludgier, punkier elements that you might find in Giant Squid or Squalus, and the you
0: know strange melodic sensibilities of Don Anderson and Jason Walton. It's a funny one So I remember when this came out or at least when they were like premiering songs from it a lot of people looking for Agalok Part 2 were very angry with this album.
1: Yeah, like the first track they released, Ossify, which I think is probably the best track off the album. It starts off like this sort of Weird the like, dark pop groove almost with really simple drum groove from Aesop Decker on the floor tom um, And this like very gradually building sort of guitar part to it. It sounds nothing like agalock It has this weird mix of these like low tuned um, I don't know if they are but they sound like seven string or baritone guitars Like the AJ's playing that are really really low and then the sort of Don Anderson Melodies over the top of that and in ossify he has these really Really agalocky melodies that are played in a completely different musical context, and it creates a really, really weird album, which I kind of love.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to this album. I think it's it's one that's kind of been unfairly maligned because it's very, I guess I'm gonna use that shit journalism phrase of the it's a very forward thinking album. It's a it's I've not heard something like Karada before. It's really incredibly original music but has a kind of consistent energy to it the whole the album does feel in a certain vein despite the despite all the kind of bizarre influences i think particularly aj's bringing into this one I don't yeah. know why I'm accusing him of bringing those influences. I, I have no idea he was responsible.
1: But AJ's vocals are such a huge departure from what you might be expecting from Agalock as well. He has these like really bizarre soaring highs which like wobble around quite a lot but it's all very controlled. There's like an alien passion to a lot of this stuff that he does that feels very different. And yet, on the other hand, he has these like sort of quite gnarly, low-end like snarls, which aren't your traditional death metal at all. And then he's got this more hardcore punk-style yell or scream that he'll pull out as well. So it's it's really, really unique to hear this combined with the more like post-rocky elements that Don Anderson might bring to the table.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's one of those albums where I still don't feel I fully understand it, but. I certainly enjoy it. It also brings back the trumpets of Sculptured on the first
1: track, um, Ediste, which is, you know, again, more weird elements to hear there. Um, And it does have these, like, slightly melodic black metal riffs that you hear sometimes where you can just about see how that has come from the evolution of Agalog. But it's completely repurposed and feels so, so different here.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think as well actually the cover really fits in with the whole strangeness of it, this being this uh, like clearly hand painted, incredibly abstract piece. It's just yeah, it definitely sets you up for the right mood for this album. Yeah, yeah. And um I'm I'm a big fan of it as well because again
1: in it, it talks a lot about in the lyrics, um, the ideas of our sort of responsibility towards the planet and the great extinction that is coming and makes reference to something which I love, which is uh, the great dying, the Permian-Triassic mass extinction, uh, where about 99% of all species were wiped out and is sort of contrasting and comparing that to the way in which the planet is being degraded and destroyed today. So I think there's some really interesting stuff in there lyrically if you read through as well and really shows a, like, maturation of some of the themes you see, particularly in um, albums like Mara of the Spirit, but coming from this perspective of, you know, a completely different person, AJ, writing the lyrics,
0: but some of that through-line is still there. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you touched on something I actually want to mention as well, of um, this band very quietly broke up, um, late last year. At the time, um, I discovered this had happened at exactly the same time, and I think I'm actually on a podcast when i discovered this um (laughs) the extremity broke up at the same moment and i kind of erroneously thought because he also had kind of quit social media as well and his podcast has stopped that um aesop decker had completely quit music but um as you may have seen in recent months rob he has come back in a bloody weird form (laughs) um so Vol are, st- are still apparently ongoing, although haven't heard much from them. But he has two new musical projects I've been listening to recently. Firstly, Bloody Fortress, which is an incredibly like experimental, um very lo-fi, odd, primarily black metal project. Um a lot of and he's been doing a lot of stuff with it and the other two or three members recording at home during yeah, during this kind of lockdown. And then his other project is under the name Onsen Sweeney. He has started a rap project with him <laughs> as the vocalist. I can kind which kind of has to... <laughs> I'm sorry. I can kind of see Aesop Decker probably being quite good at that somehow. It, it kind of works. It's not my usual style. But I, I guess yet another ex-Agaloc member proving that their taste in music is so ludicrously vast...
1: Yeah, which I yeah. Think, yeah, goes into showing just how much was being brought to the table in Agalock, that perfect storm of so many influences being weaved together which created something that was that unique and interesting, and able to have such a large influence on, you know, folk metal and black metal and post rock and all of these genres to today.
2: Yeah.
0: listener hits us up with a request to, you know, uh, give his new album a listen, and it fits so well with this episode, I had to include this. Uh, you you heard the single off of this, right Rob? <laughs> okay cool, yeah so um, this is the band, I believe it's pronounced Dreishmer. it's D-R-E-I-C-H-M-E-R and this is a band one man pro- project of uh, Dustin Matthews um, basically doing a kind of a band kind of focus on the heavier end of Agaloc sound, maybe with a kind of like OPEF first three albums kind of vibe as well. Um his his new album comes out tomorrow on May the thirty-first. It's called The Fruit of a Barren Field. Sorry, The Fruit of Barren Fields. Um and is an eighty minute long epic. Um very much in that the the vein of those bands i I spoke of earlier it's a lot of like heavy black metal sections moving into more beautiful acoustic passages. his vocals over the top of it really put me in mind of um michael ackerfeld's performance on brave murder day so yet another kind of odd tie-in of like the bands we were talking about earlier there's really great, like, and um, prominent use of bass throughout it, which I really enjoy because often in one man projects, that's the overlooked instrument. But the other side, it gets like a fantastic drum sound throughout. I think, yeah, if you're someone who loved what OpF did on Morning Rise, as that's kind of like a forgotten thing in their catalogue, really, they never, they certainly don't play any of it live now. Um, yeah, you, or channeling some of that energy, that very kind of folky, more long-form uh, energy. Like, it, it really hits that well. Um, actually, the middle of Wormian Shroud sounds... Like, it actually sounds like someone has laid a bit of an aglock melody into a bit of an Opeth melody from those eras. It's, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. Not a, it's not original. Like, the, the sort of... The way he's combining it is quite different. And actually not relying on well, hardly any clean vocals. He has a guest uh, female vocalist that comes in a few moments on it, but for most part, it's just, like, pretty death metal sounding growls. Like, he's got a really decent growling voice. But yeah, but I, thing, I thought it's an absolutely fantastic record.
1: Yeah, from, from listening to the single, the thing that like really stuck out to me and I, why I think the early Opeth comparisons so great is the riffs are super emotive. They do that thing that like Agaloc have at the beginning of Limbs where there's subtle enough things at the guitar where something that like on the face of it that seems relatively simple can channel an awful lot of emotional energy which is really, really cool to see. So yeah, I'm really excited to hear the rest of this
0: yeah it as i say 80 minutes long so it's uh it's a hell of a hell of a listen but yeah i, I think it's really impressive and and the cover's fantastic as well, actually. i was, it, I was about to like... say
1: yeah the, the cover like the use of color on it's fantastic it's all like washed out and like a real painting that's been done before you but again like yeah the the use of color a lot of black metal albums look really boring and it's nice to see a lot of reds and yellows used alongside
0: the more natural colors Well, and because it's like a nature picture, but it's done in that kind of very... um, Yeah, kind of uh, like broad brushstrokes oil painting style. And as you say, it really looks like it's got physical depth to it. It looks like an actual painting, which again, it's like kind of a left field choice in the genre. And seeing this, I'm kind of... Uh, led to question why more people don't go for this kind of style, but yeah, as I say, having heard the full thing, it's a really complete package, and I think by the time this episode comes out, it'll be out. So highly advise people go and pick that up. It's yeah, really impressive one man black metal stuff. So yeah, I think that kind of rounds it up for for this one. I know it's been a bit of a me and Rob rambling about all my all the favourite bits of Agalock, but there's so much in there it's worth looking up and uh, I've really enjoyed this kind of dive into them because I wasn't aware of most of this stuff
1: Absolutely, and it's, it's been something that I think I'll try to make myself do a little bit more often is when I go back to listening to old bands rather than just going sort of, oh that's a great album, I'll listen to that, like do that little thing of spending a day or two just going through the discography in a chronological order and seeing that evolution sort of happen right before you particularly as, I mean, Agalock was formed the year I was born, so there's no way that I could have lived through that actual formation so for older bands you can live that experience of sort of hearing them evolve, which is, is really quite
0: fun, yeah. Because I often avoid like the first albums from bands for a really long time. Although I think off the back of this, I see Pale Folklore as the album I probably won't go back too much. I know, I, I know you're you're a real fan of it, but. Whereas Marrow of the Spirit, I'm now completely sold on. Whereas previously, I wasn't so into it.
1: Absolutely. Marrow of the Spirit's been the big winner. Each time I go back to it, I think again, it's like, yeah, this is really interesting and incredibly off-putting. And I kind of love that it's so... Almost feels deliberately off-putting.
0: But there's so much there. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, so if you enjoyed this... uh hit us up let us know if there's any kind of like interesting side projects and that we missed i know there's a lot of stuff we kind of skipped over you can get in touch uh, phil's breakfast metal on facebook at breakfast metal on twitter or if you want to get in touch via email phil's breakfast metal at gmail.com we've had a fair few people like send us their music recently so yeah if it's something we enjoy we'll happily feature your band um at the end of the episode um and yes, yeah, so to close us out, um, I'm going to play a track off uh, the fruit of a ba- the fruit of barren fields. Why can't I say that properly? Yeah, thanks a lot for joining me, Rob. Um, uh, thanks a lot for listening.